Well, hello and welcome to Rare Nautical Reads with me, Chris Stanmore Major. In this episode, we're continuing John Caldwell's Desperate Voyage and we're on Chapter 22. Chapter 22 Rescue I hauled southward down the coast, skirting the wide, heavily toothed open reef at 200 yards. The small island was a bare mile and a half away, across the reef and across the lagoon. Though I had been through the New Hebrides during the war, I couldn't tag the island. It was about seven miles long and looked seven or eight hundred feet high. It was volcanic, capped by a crater-like summit. Along the shore, the malformed lava cliffs jumped up twenty or thirty feet, deeply underwashed by the sea. Here and there, a flat depression ended in a white sandy beach, grown to mangrove and coconut trees. My plan was to locate the opening in the reef and shoot into the lagoon to anchor before a village or beach my boat on one of the sandy shores. I was racing against time. Pagan hadn't been pumped in four hours. Water was rising. I was saving my strength for the bout with the short, clumsy tiller and the struggle to get ashore. Down the full length of the coast I ran till I neared the southeast corner and still I found no opening in the reef. As I closed with the point, I realised the danger of going around it. I dared not pass to leeward of the protruding fist of land. Once by, I would never work back. I remembered my failure at the recent unidentified island. Nor could I turn back and reach up the long coast. My course had thrown me in hard by the reef. I hadn't room to manoeuvre or the strength to do it. For one thing, the bulky mast, strapped as it was angularly across the deck, was an impediment. It dragged in the sea whenever the deck sloped and made Pagan difficult to manoeuvre. I thought of going forward to cut its lashings, but I knew I hadn't the strength to roll it off. My strength was gone. I was unable to pump out, and the water in the hold was rising. The point was a hundred yards off. I had to act. A dread decision with regard to my boat was in the balance, and it had to be made. I suddenly realised that my battered little craft was a coffin. Kim Powell in Panama had said, She'll go as far as you can stay with her. The prophecy was true. I was finished, but my sporty little cutter was still game for the fight. I had no alternative but to wreck her to save my life. What is worse, I had no time to weigh the pros and cons of the predicament. Rather than turn that corner to sure death, rather than go about and fight hopelessly and vainly up the uninviting coast, I kicked the helm hard down and raced bow on toward the exposed reef. My last official decision as Pagan's captain, for now she was heading into an alley from which she would never return. I was dressed in army khaki. Earlier, when I sighted the island, I had a quick sponge bath sitting at the rail. I combed the salt from my beard and arranged my bothersome hair, now long as a woman's, into a knot and covered it with a cap. My feet were too swollen for anything but stockings. My bulbous knee I wrapped in blanket stripping. I had grabbed a few last things and crammed them in my pockets. Hand on the tiller, I waited the shock. The keel passed over several coral heads about six fathoms down. Farther on, the reef began to shoal quickly and the sea floor was only four fathoms. I can anchor in this, I suddenly realised. At a slow motion gait, I limped forward to the anchor and made to put it over. Partly because of my boil-like knee, but mostly because I had no strength, I couldn't begin to budge the anchor. I was nearing the reef. The sea was pounding like thunder on it. I sat down, put my feet against the flukes, and pushed with all my might, but I was helpless to move it. The din was closer. I was caught in the grip of the current, and I was being swept into the reef. I got up, took the fluke in my hands, and strained at it. It raised a foot... I lost my balance and stumbled. Pagan caught the swell of a roller, rode in on its back and crashed stem two against the coral wall. She shivered as though struck by shellfire. I was sitting in the port rail. One of her planks sprung, pointing away from the stem. I could see the water gush through it. In a moment, she settled by the bow. The deck was awash, the fore scuttle covered. In no time, I was sitting to my pockets in water. I could only sit and watch. 
The decks were lurching too much to permit me to stand. I could hear a horrible noise as Pagan pounded against the reef at the beam. Only the watertight stern section was buoyant. The bow was still going down. Water was up to my waist. The next two rollers lifted the stern on the reef. I could feel the dull thud of the lead-shod keel against the iron-hard coral. The next sea combed across the bows, sweeping me against the deckhouse where I clung to the mast. Each successive sea worked her higher on the reef, turning her broadside to the destructive waves and tilting her at a crazy angle. The next impact shook me from my hold. I slipped down the abrupt incline and fell free of the boat onto the coral, only to be overwhelmed by a sea that twisted me in a somersault and threw me back onto shallower coral ground. I gathered myself up, shook free of the grasping water, and somehow moved a few feet to where it was safe. I had backed away from my battered boat onto the dry coral and sat cursing the bullying sea. Pagan was thrown up to where the water was knee-deep. Each time a roller broke over her, she shuddered and ground her planks on the sharp coral. Behind me, the jagged reef ran for 200 yards. I turned and staggered in the stiff-legged way of the gaunt and hungry to the brink of the reef. There, the lagoon dropped to a depth of nine fathoms, where a garden land of coral formations grew. Tiny fish were as visible in 50 feet of water as in 50 feet of clear air. I shunned the water like poison, knowing that if I should fall in, I would sink like a weight. I lay down on the coral to rest and dropped instantly and helplessly asleep. Hours later, the rising tide, marching across the reef, lapped against me. With the feel of water, I jerked awake, thinking it was time to pump the bilges. Seeing myself on the crusty reef, I was startled, then shocked. Then I remembered. The tide was coming in. The reef was covered. Two hundred yards away, Pagan was taking an unmerciful pounding from the growing rollers. I decided to struggle back to the boat and get the life raft. I wobbled back to her, keeping in the less disturbed waters of her lee. She was thigh deep in water and had been bowled over several times. The little rubber life raft had been caught beneath the boat and ground onto the coral spikes. After trailing astern for over a thousand miles of the Pacific since the hurricane, it ended on the coral needles. I waded to the sloping deck and climbed uncertainly aboard, looking for something on which to float across the deep lagoon. Pagan was on her beam, teetering away, likely to lob over again. Knife in hand, I hacked away the stout lashings holding the 35-foot mast to the deck. I jumped off and sloshed to where water was knee-deep and looked back. This rising sea was whamming Pagan and threatening to bowl her over. Suddenly Pagan jammed her beam into the coral and clumped over from her beam onto her decks. The hull pointing skyward was ghastly with barnacles and scars and loose planking. I felt drowsy but there was no place to lie down. The growing waves were pushing me back away from the boat. Then the mast worked loose and I took a hold of it. I held to it as the sea drove it slowly across the reef. When I reached the lagoon, I climbed on its heaviest part, straddled it, floating on it. My arms and legs were dangling in the water, my head and chest resting on the hard curved surface. For a long time, I lay watching the island as I floated off onto the lagoon. Finally, I drifted off into a sleep-like drowse. I awakened when the mast scraped on the soft shore. I was in a small alcove fronted with bright sand, overtowered by a beetling wall of volcanic rock. I plodded out of the water onto the white sand. I slumped into the inviting warmth and fell asleep again. The incoming tide, washing my feet some time later, awakened me as it marched up the beach. I crawled higher on the sloping beach to the base of the twenty-foot cliff face where I hoped the water wouldn't reach and dropped off again in a slumber. In a while, I was disturbed again, the rising tide. Looking on the rocks, I could see a high watermark, shoulder high. The miniature cove, soon to be filled with wind-driven water, was no place to be at high tide. I could imagine the havoc of swirling waters in the bowl pushed there by the crushing tide. Had I not been weak 
or my knee tender, I could easily have scaled the cliff. There were footholds and handholds aplenty. It was only a matter of simple climbing, but my arms and legs and hands were powerless. Looking back now, I can't explain even to myself how I climbed those rocks. They were 20 feet high. They were sharp. No man could say they were terribly difficult to climb, I admit. But at the same time, I was weak. Too weak to budge a 50-pound anchor before I wrecked. Yet I managed to push and pull my 80 or 90 pounds up the 20 feet of lava formation. The first thing I did when I got to the top was to lie down for a sleep. It was a nap that lasted the rest of the afternoon and all that night. For the first time in 48 days, I didn't have to pull myself up at disjointed hours of the night to pump the bilges, but I awakened several times from force of habit. My ears were long tuned to the creaking of Pagan's timbers and the myriad sounds from her watered bilges and from wind in her sails and rigging. The absence of those sounds was as significant as those sounds themselves, and when I couldn't hear them, I could only sleep patchily. When daybreak broke, I laboured to a sitting position, feeling fresh enough to think of food and water. I was sitting in a patch of misshapen lava surrounded by thick, reckless-grown jungle, creepers and tight trees. A mile across the lagoon I could see the remains of my intrepid pagan, high and dry on the shining reef. She looked frowsy and tortured. Her standing rigging was smashed away, her deck house gone, she lay on her beam halfway across the long reef, pointing her naked decks to the sky. Below me, the beach of the alcove was strewn with driftage from Pagan, bits of chewed planking, articles of clothing, bedding, sailcloth, water kegs, spars and shroud wires. I searched into the entangled jungle from my seat, looking for signs of tropical foods. I had expected to find bananas, coconuts, bird rookeries and water easily, I saw nothing encouraging, only the dense patchwork of illimitable undergrowth topped by towering oak-like trees. From nearby, I selected several varieties of leaves and chewed at them. They were tasteless and more dry than otherwise. I remembered having seen coconut palms on the shore when I was skirting the reef with Pagan. It was my hope now to find them and eat of them till someone came along or my strength returned to where I could manage a search inland or along the coast for a village. I decided to go south and at the same time to seek for the lee side of the isle. I wondered how far I would have to go and I wondered how far I could go. I figured I'd better get an early start so I wobbled to my feet. To southward, around the beckoning point that I had nearly sailed past, appeared the shortest way to the island's leeward shores. If the island was inhabited, there would be a village there. I took a stout limb for support and started on an uncertain quest over the pocked, spiny lava. I ate leaves as I trudged along and sucked the ends of broken branches for sap. A small land crab, jumping from rock to rock, darted in front of me, and I pinioned him with my stick. Taking him up, I tore him apart and sucked his bitter-tasting insides out. I chewed his plated legs, sucked the shelly mass dry, and spit it up. It gave me fresh hope and fresh strength. Farther along, I found another crab. He too I sucked from his shell. I had come now some 15 or 20 yards in a couple of hours. My walking was unbearably slow. I wanted to go faster, but the rocks. They were rocks such as I had never seen before. They were like an eagle's claws inverted. The island is volcanic in origin, and evidently centuries of rain pelting upon the wearable lava has fined it down to innumerable stalagmite-looking points sticking up at heights from three inches to three feet. They crowded upon themselves in their formation like a close forest, making a flat space, even the width of a bare foot, something to remember. I teetered among them, placing my feet carefully on the least sharp of the points and using my hands on the higher lava spires to brace myself and push myself along. My legs were weakening, and my bad knee beginning to ache. My swollen heavy feet were too much of a load to be carried much farther. Their weight was such that often I had to lift them from behind the knees over the higher rocks. I lay down among the rocks to rest. It was so easy to sleep. I could have slept forever. Sleep was as effortless as thinking to an active mind. My body cried for 24 hours of sleep. 
but my judgment complained at the little distance I had travelled, so I forced myself to move on. Hour, I wended through another ten yards of rock semi-jungle. I was so tired I trembled. I was ready to quit. I looked for a spot to lie down. From out of the rocks, a coral snake glided toward me, weaving in such a way that I knew he didn't see me. My parched throat watered at the sight of him. Instantly I thought of his meat and blood, food. When he was close enough, I trapped him with my stick, holding it into the centre of his body, pressing hard, trying to break his back. He writhed madly. I was hoping he would soon succumb. My hunger juices, wetted by the crabs and leaves, were yearning, and I wondered how one went about eating a snake. I pushed against the stick the harder. My strength began to give out. My arms trembled so that the stick moved, losing its purchase, and the snake darted into the rocks. The exertion tired me, so I sat down, napping where I sat, but not for long. I felt a compulsion driving me to round the point while I had strength to walk. Later in the afternoon, another twenty yards along, I came upon a lone coconut tree. It was short, not reaching higher than twenty-five feet, and a dozen green nuts, most delicious for drinking, were nestled in its fronds. Slapping the tree, I shouted happily and kissed it. Here I could stay, eating the nuts, till I grew strong again. In a short time, my joy faded to ironic discouragement. Though the life-giving coconuts were a scant twenty feet overhead, I was powerless to reach them. I knew that I was powerless to climb the tree. I threw my hiking stick at them. The shoulder muscles were so weak that my arm came out of socket and fell limp at my side till I pressed it in again. I gave up and slept on the mound of earth at the base of the tree. When I rose in a few hours, I searched about and found a wheezed old nut. My knife, though rusted, was suitably sharp, but not the world's sharpest knife could have availed me then, because I was too weak to use it. Nevertheless, I set to work, hewing at the end of the nut. After what seemed hours, I had hacked through a bare inch of the outer fibrous husk. My fingers, hands and arms ached from the clumsy work. There was an inch to go to the inner nut, but I was so weak and tired, I doddered. Even as I stared uselessly at the nut, I dozed. I dropped it and fell back. I slept as I had wanted to sleep, uninhibited and without moving, the rest of the afternoon and the whole of the night. I awakened next morning, weaker than when I had fallen asleep. Beside me lay the wrinkled nut, and nearby the knife. I took them up and struck one against the other with chopping half-strength cuts. Within minutes I was tired. My hands cramped up and refused to open or close. I had only to cut through an inch of husk to find three small depressions. By punching one of them, I could reach the inside cool milk. I picked the nut up and beat it against the sharp rocks. I pounded it till my breath came in gasps, then dropped it in despair and lay back in a heap. The third day ashore, and I had seen nothing but a torturous floor of projecting crags and confused growth. My tongue was puffed and sticky. The bad knee was turning black. Coral poisoning, picked up out on the reef, which I had been unaware of up to this point, was festering in a dozen places on my feet and legs. I lay about a hundred paces inland. Hard by, I could hear the sea pounding into the underwashed caverns along the shore. I knew I was on my last legs, and my only chance for life lay in getting back to where I could watch the water and intercept a chance passer. I struggled to a shaky stance and trudged toilsomely in the direction of the sea, stumbling and falling, oblivious of everything, intent only on reaching the dull noise of the pounding surf. I came out above a small alcove, making an irregular half-circle around a sandspit some twenty feet below me. A strong wind, sufficient if I had been out on it under sail, to necessitate tucking in a reef, was whirling the sand in eddies along the strand. The tide was well out, revealing a bottom heavy with rocks and ledges of coral. Out on the reef I could see no sign of Pagan. The sea and coral had triumphed over her. Around the shore were indications of her presence. I lay down and slept. Sometime later I heard sounds that weren't exactly the sea. 
Looking from my perch, I saw three small native children racing excitedly about on the beach. They were bushy-haired and black-skinned. They shouted and screamed in high glee over the fabulous findings they were making. They were directly below me. I leaned over the ledge, intending to shout, Hey Joe, come here! Instead, a weird, uncontrollable gurgle rattled forth. The boys looked round, then up. What they saw was mirrored in their faces. Their eyes grew saucer-like with terror. In one motion, they dropped all they had collected and ran screaming for their lives. I was so suddenly left alone that I was afraid I had imagined what I saw, but the footprints were there. They spoke volumes in relief and peace of mind. At least someone knew that a stranger was on the island. I lay back and slept, waking to stare at the watery point around which they had gone as long and as often as possible. Heavy hours dragged by. The tide worked up the beach to full. Driven by the flush wind, it thundered into the worn cliff base, throwing dollops of water well back into the matted brush and vine. Finally, I heard long shouts and watched the mouth of the alcove. An outrigger broke into view, carrying six young boys. They were punting her along in the shallow water. I hailed them. They dropped on one knee, the better to see me, and stared incredulously. They were a scant thirty yards away. I could tell that they had seen a few white men before, and it was apparent that the frightened children hadn't been taken seriously in their village. The gullible teenagers had come to investigate. I motioned them into the cove so I could be dragged from my perch in the rocks. They tried valiantly to poke the delicate hulled outrigger into the precarious opening, but were forced to give up. The zesty wind blowing, the tide coming in, the heavy rollers breaking into the rock-ribbed cove baffled their seamanship. Rightfully, they gave up. They smiled gamely, indicating that it was impossible to come in. They indicated that I should move out to the ledge at the fringe of the cove mouth, about forty feet from me. From there they could possibly catch me as I jumped over. If I could but win to that point, I was safe. I tried to stand, but there wasn't enough to push in my arms and legs to get me off my back, and I showed them how helpless I was. They motioned that they were returning to their village, that they would come again. I communicated to them that I was foodless, waterless. I fell back in a fainting gesture to imply that if they didn't come for me soon, it wouldn't matter if they never came. Lying back was so peaceful, I forgot they were there and soon found myself dozing. I was shocked to wake by water splashing over me. It was dark. I thought I was aboard Pagan in the tight, cold cabin. I was saying to myself, It's time to pump the bilges. I felt around for the tea, just a pinch to chew while I heaved at the pump. My hand scraped across the rocks. Then I remembered and looked out onto the black lagoon. The sea was pounding against the cliffs. The tide was coming up again. A high wind was blowing and salt water was bombarding the jungle. I suppose the natives had come looking for me and missed me. I was too weak to sit up for long. I propped myself on my side so that I could squint through a crevice in the rocks at the sea. The wind and water were cold. My clothes were sticking to me. I was getting properly miserable. Then I saw lights on the water. They were well off from the shore. I knew it was the outrigger come for me. Then I made it to be two outriggers, maybe three. When they pulled up even with me, they stopped and evidently anchored to study the situation. The torches burned fiercely in the wind and the boats huddled offshore. Occasionally, when the sea and wind were momentarily slack, I yelled gutturally. They heard me and shouted back encouragement above the brewing storm. It was understandable that they didn't hazard their delicate outriggers in the obstreperous surf. The surge of sea over the rocky bottom would have smashed the hulls out of them. I called to them at every favourable opportunity, and when they heard, they answered reassuringly. Hours dragged by. The torches one by one were put out, and finally only one torch shone in the water. I grew panicky, thinking I'd never be rescued. The natives were evidently waiting for daylight. I was cold, wet, and miserable. Surely they were cunning enough to devise some means of getting me out before then. I set up such a caterwaul of despondent calls that soon the boat sprang audibly and visibly to life. Several torches flared up, voices sang out, and one of the craft detached itself and moved slowly away to the north. Something was afoot. The other boats moved in to about fifty feet off the rocks, 
I could see naked shoulders and bushy heads under the fires. They called good-naturedly and pointed to the north. I called to them in Spanish, then in French, but they gave the same friendly answers and waved their flares to the north. Sometime later, I heard brush rustling in the jungle and the snap of limbs underfoot. I threw myself down out of sight and listened. A voice called in a strange tongue, and I sat up and answered. Those on the water joined in and an excited three-way interchange cropped up. A torch suddenly swayed in view from the dark and stopped in the air above me. An exclamation of disbelief came from behind the sputtering light. The bearer was panting heavily from his struggle with the rocks and bramble. All I could say was, Hello, Joe. I could not sit up any longer. I could only extend a hand. I made out massive shoulders and arms beneath the light and a bushy head. He was a tall man. His voice, husky and full of understanding, spoke soothing words and shouted instructions to the boats. The light disappeared and the powerful arms closed about me, wafting me into the air. My good Samaritan hustled me in a jiffy over the forty feet to the overhanging ledge where the boys earlier could have saved me. I was held in hard-muscled arms while one of the boats, heavily manned with oarsmen and punters, worked up to the battered rock face. I could hear oars slapping the water furiously and the punting poles pounding at the black, shapeless cliff face to fend the boat off. Instructions were loudly bandied. The craft, flooded with torchlight, was directly below, heaving to the surging seas. More words passed from mouth to mouth. This time, they were desperate instructions. The prow was scraping over the charred rock. My benefactor twisted me upside down and handed me down at the ankles. Upreaching arms folded me in and exclaimed when they felt my small girth. When I was safe aboard, a yell of triumph went up from all throats and the other boats answered. A moment later, an audible crash shook the small craft. It was my benefactor who had jumped aboard from his perch. It's a wonder he hadn't broken a leg or stove the light deck in. I was laid on the stern of the open boat, the stanch oarsman working the boat off the cliffy shore. My friend came to me and covered me over with a sheet of tapper cloth. When I clamoured for food and drink, he offered me a baked kumala, a kind of sweet potato, which I took and nibbled a morsel from. The long days and nights of quiet desperation were over. The fact of food in my hands and a pot of native tea being offered me overwhelmed me. I lost all caution. I bit viciously into the kamala. I chewed it voraciously and swallowed it in great gulps, washing it down with volumes of the hot tea. I sighed and exclaimed over the food with pleasure, much to the delight of my friend who egged me on generously, giggling happily as I bolted great mouthfuls. I knew I shouldn't be gobbling as I was, but though I tried mightily, judgment went glimmering after the first taste. When I was gorged, I lay back and fell asleep to the tune of oar beats and punting poles and the lilt of a strange language. Chapter 23 Tuvutha When I came to, it was with the deep consciousness of the village around me. I was in a thatched hut, lying on my back. Above me were the rafters and ceilingless dome of a thatched dwelling. A ridgepole of coconut trunk supported a thick roofing of pandanus and coconut thatch, all lashed intricately in place with a coarse, fibrous rope. This, I realised, was the hut of the man who had saved me. I lay on a woven mat, spread over a layer of coconut leaves stripped from the branch, my bed was a hard, uncomfortable one. When I stirred, someone sitting at my side moved and looked at me closely. It was a native woman who showed relief at my stirring, and whose eyes indicated she had tended me for anxious hours. I had been in a coma a full day and night. The whole time she had sat patiently, feeding me in my delirium on a balm of coconut milk. My knee was poulticed in a soggy wrapping of native herbals, and the offensive coral poisoning too was checked. My life was saved. Ichika, as I learned, was the man who rescued me from the rocks. He carried me to his dark hut, where care of me was given into the hands of his soft-spoken, efficient wife. She 
with a woman's intuitiveness and native cunning, saw my condition at a glance. She knew that the starved shouldn't eat as I had eaten, nor drink as I had drunk on the outrigger. She nodded her head gravely over my gaseous, swelling stomach, swollen to where the stretched skin burned, and my breaths came in short gasps. Even after I was saved from the rocks, she knew I might have died. The Kumalas wolfed so hungrily, and the tea gulped, could have, but for her, finished me. With a long, calloused finger, she probed far down in my throat, turning and upsetting my stomach, freeing it of the unchewed lumps of heavy food and the flood of water. She put her hands on my stomach, pressed gently and firmly till the gases rumbled out of my throat and my breathing became normal. After that, I was pervaded with a sense of nothingness, but to return. When I awakened thirty hours later, staring into the strange rafters of the hut, she was still there, tending me. I owe her my life, and I owe my life to her husband, who scrambled over the rocks for me. She is Una, an infinite woman, a woman of great kindness and understanding. Una rarely smiled or showed emotion. She wasn't exactly inscrutable, for I know she felt deeply, and in small ways she showed it. She showed the depth of her feelings in the selfless care she gave me. She proved herself unforgettable in the numberless things I saw her do before I left the island. Anything she did, she did well. She is one of those rare women who accomplish a prodigious amount of work in a single day. I was famished from my long coma. Una gave me a half shell of coconut milk and a hot broth of fish and breadfruit with a turtle egg to eat raw. Itchy, as I nicknamed Ichika, propped me up from behind as Una fed me a bit at a time. It was difficult for me to chew even the small, soft breadfruit lumps. My jaw muscles grew so tired in a few motions that they refused to wag. My swallowing muscles too soon collapsed and I couldn't force anything down. I learned, before long, that the best way to eat was to have an hour's rest between tidbits. Then my jaws could munch again and my swallowing machinery was good for a few minutes' work. When the villagers learned I had come to life, they trooped in for a look. The hut was filled to overflowing. They sat around, cross-legged, leaning toward me, searchingly. I lay, studying every face and feature for a clue to the land I was on. They weren't black so much as coffee-coloured. They were clean, healthy, powerfully built, tall, congenial. I couldn't identify them with any land I had seen in my travels. I spoke to the soft-featured blacks, asking the name of their land. To a man, they spoke no English. I spoke next in French, then in Spanish. They looked blank and finally giggled at my efforts. I laughed and they laughed with me and I knew we were pals. Pointing to the ground, I asked, New Hebrides? No one moved. New Caledonia? No response. Loyalty Islands? Still silence. Though I knew I was far from the Solomons, I asked, Solomon Islands? They struck a responsive chord. Again, I asked, Solomon Islands? One of the old men came forward nodding his head. Evidently, in his long life, he had heard of the Solomons. Indicating the surroundings, he said, Loma Loma. Loma Loma? Loma Loma Tuvuthu. Loma Loma Tuvuthu? The words meant nothing to me. I pressed him further. Loma Loma Tuvuthu Ilao, I said. Lao I knew to be the easternmost part of the Fiji Islands but I knew I couldn't be in Fiji. I had missed the Fijis and sailed on to the New Hebrides, but what the oldster said made me think. I could easily see the hale men before me were a far cry from the malarial, ulcerous, pot-bellied natives I had seen in the New Hebrides during the war. I figured maybe I had misunderstood him. We haggled in blind alleys further. Eventually, a crude chart was scratched on a box top, a finger was laid on a remote oblong dot in a string of dots designated as the Lao group of Fiji. The island was Tuvutha, the village Loma Loma. The word impinged on me like a bolt, Fiji. I stared long at the ludicrous map. To the south was Lakamba, to the north Vanuambalava, to the west Nayau, and farther to west the main islands of the group. The incredible fact that I was in eastern Fiji was hard to believe. My estimates of speed and position of Pagan after the hurricane had been 
immensely wrong. It made me wonder had I been near Samoa or not? Where exactly had I been these last seven weeks during my blind searchings? I can never know, but I shall always wonder about it. At any rate, I still say I did what I thought best and it saved my life. That's the test. Now I was isolated on a primitive island which I soon learned from sign language and guesswork was visited every four months by a native island trader. The copra schooner had just left a couple of weeks before, more than three months before it would come again. Three months out here on a lonely, unvisited, tropic island. Sitting in a semicircle about me and towering over me were twenty massively proportioned black men. Their faces, their voices, their attitudes were friendly. I was sure they were peaceful people to be isolated with. The average height of the bushy-haired men was a mite short of six feet, some of them running to six feet four and six feet six inches. They are what you would call built like a brick jailhouse. They are the healthiest-looking humans I have ever seen. Their teeth, which they never brush, are straight and beautifully white. Ordinarily, they dress only at the loins, men and women, wrapped around from the waist in the lavish sulu which extends to the knees. The women expose their breasts commonly, that is, all except the younger unmarried women, known as Marys, who almost never do. These islanders have a precocious, apt look and a graceful, stately carriage from balancing their food at the ends of poles across their shoulders and porting it over narrow jungle trails. They are broad in the face and strong in the jaw, and their hair runs to a great halo-like bushiness which is both ornamental and traditional. Their generous hearts, I soon learned, are the biggest part of them. They represent the inbreeding of Melanesian with Polynesian and Tongan, a unique Negroid people are the result. Here there is no malaria, no tropical ulcers, no dread European diseases. The advantages of civilization happily haven't invaded this remote corner of the world, and I hope they never do. Every indication of vital health is rampant. The greatest and often most unobtainable desires of so-called civilization, peace, quiet, security, health, are here the simplest commonplaces. Now that Una had nurtured me through the first two critical days, my condition improved rapidly. The natural food of the island agreed beautifully with me. On the third day I was able to stand shakily. On the fifth I could walk to the door with the cane itchy made me from Pagan's timbers and peer out at the village and call to my growing circle of friends. Itchy also made me a rather imposing-looking chair, which I called my throne. I sat in it during the days that I waited for strength to come to my legs so I could walk. The natives sat around me in a deep circle, watching curiously anything I did. I was the first white man to stay on the island, though a few had visited it. A large number of the natives gathered at Itchy's hut every night to puff at their hand-rolled jungle cigarettes and chat together over the dim lantern. On my third night at the village, I was in good spirits for the first time since my rescue. I was coherent and able to sit unassisted in my chair. After a few jovialities, they began asking me about the circumstances of my arrival on the island. To answer them was no easy job. There were about 15 words of English known to them and the same number of words of their language known to me. But luckily, we had hands. First, I had to remind them that there had been a war and that it was over. Then I explained that I had a wife showing them Mary's pictures which I had crammed in my shirt pockets when I ate my wallet and the white space around my finger where there had been a ring till I grew so skinny that it had slipped off. I also told them that I was from the island of America, far away, of which they had heard, and that Mary was from the island of Australia. I scribbled a sprawling map on a sheet of paper, drawing in popular landmarks including Tuvutha, they were astounded that their island was so small. I showed them New York, Frisco, New Orleans, and explained the impossibility of obtaining transport to my bride of long absence from any of these places. I drew in Panama and indicated I had sailed from there aboard Pagan. I first impressed on them its great distance by pointing to a high, exaggerated arc out to and over the horizon. Then I took the approximate width of Tavutha, one mile, and multiplied it many, many times by flashing and closing my palms before them, at the same time tracing the path of my voyage on the crude map. 
Their credulity was strained, and yet I hadn't made the distance great enough. Such a distance was incomprehensible. Then one of them asked me what had happened to my shipmates aboard Pagan, and how many there had been. I hastened to explain there were no shipmates, that I had sailed alone. He asked the whys and wherefores of my thin bones and my being wrecked out on the reef, and again he asked where my crewmates were. I explained I was alone, that I had sailed single-handed. He didn't understand, and asked me if, in my extremity, I had eaten them. I hastened to assure them all that I had sailed from Panama entirely alone. Since they couldn't conceive of anyone attempting such a voyage singly, they couldn't accept explanations. The fellow still didn't comprehend. Another came forward. He asked in most precise pantomime if I had eaten my crew members. He even went to the extreme of holding my arm and champing at it by way of explanation. At this point, I'm sure they all believed I was a cannibal. Not a breath was taken as all leaned on the next words I should utter. With the most articulate puppetry, I reenacted the whole voyage, stressing particularly that I had started out solo, and even if I had had someone with me, I would not have eaten him. Episode after episode I related, right up to the night of the rescue. Throughout, they were geared to attention, amazed and impressed in turn. The islander is strictly a seaman at heart, for the island, in a sense, is a ship perpetually at anchor. Things of the sea are deeply involved with his life. His respect for a seaman is unlimited. Often the chieftains are such by virtue, purely of their prowess at the helm. My exploit struck them in a vital spot, though I am sure they couldn't see why I had done it for a mere woman. But since I was from civilization. I am sure they forgave me this queerness. With childlike appreciation, they demanded unanimously to hear the account again. So, not suspecting what I was getting into, I repeated the wild yarn, word for word, action for action. They received it jubilantly and wanted to hear it still again. To a man, they shouted, Talanoa, story! Their simple, earnest appreciation threw me on my beam ends. To get out of the rut I seemed to have got myself into, I insisted that they sing for me instead. In their ready way, they were agreeable. They sang their ancient battle songs in booming, hypnotizing tones. They sang in a stately, ever-varying chant, accompanied by solemn chords from a ringing triangular iron. The effect was gripping. The singers themselves were highly affected, seeming to be in a semi-trance. They sat hunched loosely forward, head down, eyes partly veiled with the profound emotion of their music. The dogs howled mournfully. When the singing ended, I thought the party was over, but they insisted that I sing for them. This nearly floored me. Not only was I stricken with strange fright, but I'm not musically inclined. Truth is, I sing as most people scream. However, they insisted, so I prepared for a questioning debut. The only thing I could think of was deep in the heart of Texas, so I sang it. It went over big. It was a raving success. They crowded close, wanting more. I gave them next the Star Spangled Banner, which was a little slow for their taste, so I livened things up with Roll Out the Barrel. This was right up their alley, so I led on with Walsing Matilda, an Aussie song, and tried to end the show with Pistol Pack and Mama, once again, they were laid in the aisles. I sang the rousing football song of the University of California, my alma mater, and before they could importune me further, I gave the all's-finished signal and made ready to bed down. Una, seeing I was tired, took my part, and the party dispersed. The first week, my stern dietitian allowed me only soft foods like boiled fish, baked breadfruit, chicken skin, kumala, uve, a type of yam, turtle eggs, boiled eels, mangoes, pineapple, and papaya. I couldn't eat much at a time before my jaws tired or my swallowing apparatus failed. Two, my shrunken stomach filled with only a few bites and before I could eat on, I had to wait for digestion. I was constantly hungry. I ate as often as my complicated conditions permitted. I took meals 
from a kind of table itch he had pounded together from my faithful forescuttle that had taken such a drubbing from head seas during the hurricane, and from which on many occasions I had stood squinting hopefully across the bows for land. Now I was eating from it. I ate about seven meals a day, arising at least twice in the night. I had but to say, Una, Kai, Kai, as food. She always stirred from her sleep, uncomplainingly, elbowed Itchy, and the two of them prepared something for my middle-of-the-night snack. Itchy lit the fire and warmed whatever Una decided I could have. Then Una would sit beside me, breaking the hot food into small bits, taking out bones, handing it to me, and speaking fast, strange words if I didn't chew well. I always felt bad when I roused from a deep sleep, but as it was, I hadn't strength to sit, and when strength came, it was too painful to sit long because of my bony hanks. You have no idea what it is to sit or lie on fleshless bones. The Fijians didn't know of inner spring mattresses. My bed, of leaves stripped from coconut fronds, was as hard as Pagan's bunk boards, only harder since I had no blanket now. I felt like a ship in a dry dock, shored up by my bones. One night, I attempted to climb to my feet with my cane and stagger across the room to the food shelf so as not to impose on Una and Itchy. I had a preview of what it is to be ninety. With mincing, shaking steps I got underway. Fijian children sleep where tiredness finds them. Halfway across the large room, my toe touched a leg, and I went reeling amidst the family of six boys. Oh, the torture of being fallen on by a bony man! Judging from the squawks of the waking boys, there are only a few things worse, like being hit by a gunny sack of wood or worse. Una admonished me severely for not calling her. I was fed and carried back to my bed where I slept till my intricate hunger mechanism could manipulate again. At the end of the first week, Una and Itchy let me know that henceforth I could have any food I wanted. I promptly pointed out a small pig rooting on the common. In short time, the village boys were in wild chase and the piglet was in the pot. Soon, I was happily gnawing pork joints. Thereafter, anything I wanted was lavished on me. From this time on, Tuvutha became a shipwrecked sailor's paradise. First of all, every article of Pagan's gear found on the beaches or floating on the lagoon or otherwise gleaned from the reef or the seafloor was brought to me by the natives. Everything was spread out before me and what I wanted I dragged toward me. The rest I pushed back. I kept only one of the suits of clothes and a dress shirt. My feet were too swollen for weeks to wear shoes, so I gave them to those who found them. They fitted only the small boys. The men's feet were like pillows. The remainder of my gear, several suits of khakis and an odd assortment of clothing, I handed out so that as many as possible could have an article to wear. The pleasantest surprise came when my jewellery was returned. My silver identification wristlet, brought in England at the first of the war, and my gold wedding band from Australia were laid before me. I was delighted. I had never expected to see them again after they dropped off my fleshless hands. The sharp-eyed divers had seen them flash at nine fathoms on the lagoon floor and retrieve them for me. The sulu, or loincloth, wrapped around the waist and twisted under, is all I wore the whole time on the island. Going native was fun. The Fijians got a kick out of it too. When I was able to walk, I spent my days wandering through the village, limping at half pace on a cane. At Loma Loma, you don't knock, you just walk in. I spent many of my visits in the home of the village school teacher. My ambition is to be a school teacher, so we spent a lot of time talking shop. The village chief, Tupa, and I became great buddies also. Several times I was invited in for Kai Kai, and one night I received his supreme compliment. I slept in his koro, or house. That night, Tupa and I sat talking across the pale lantern. He prepared his native smoke, drying a greenish leaf over a smouldering coconut husk and rolling it in dried banana stripping. Someday, he said, he was going to the island of America. He pulled heavily on the weak cigarette with his strong lips. He had heard at Vanuam Balavu in his youth of great hotels and their fabulous elevators that take you flying between floors in buildings higher than coconut palms. His black, calloused hand rose in a quick glide. His face gleamed. He wanted to live in a hotel and take high rides. He blew a whiff of smoke from his wide nostrils. The trains, he wanted to ride on them. 
He wanted to attend the theatres, eat in the great restaurants, visit the big homes. Tupa is going to do everything when he comes to America. The muscles under his black skin quivered with excitement, as he told me. An infinite vision was in his eyes. To him, America will be another Tuvutha. He will go where he wants and have a great time. Americans will open their hearts to him, as his island did to me. That night, before I slept, I prayed in my usual orisons that the stately chief would never be allowed to fulfill his naive and simple dream. Another of my friends, the grizzled old God-fearing native pastor, spent many an afternoon limping with me along the beach, talking of many things. Often we dwelt on my profound experience when I refound Vakalo, or God, out on the lonesome sea. He too had found Vakalo in early life in stress and storm between the islands on his outrigger. He had been crippled as a young man in a heavy offshore blow. He had foundered some five miles from land and had swum to shore only to be battered by the high seas on the coral reefs. Only Vakalo could have saved him. So he gave his life in service to Vakalo. He had been educated for the divinity in a Methodist church in Lakamba, capital of Laos. That was 30 years ago. Over the years, he'd managed to hang on to 10 or 15 English words he had picked up at the trading posts with which he discussed the religion of his little wooden church and local gossip. I asked him one day, because of my interest in sociology, what the divorce rate was amongst the natives. I had an idea it would be low. I knew it wouldn't be of the staggering proportions of the rate at home. He didn't understand what I meant. I was more explicit when I re-asked. Still, he cocked his head and squinted his eyes in perplexity. I went to the extremes of description. I explained in my petty vocabulary and pantomime the marriage ritual. He comprehended. I indicated ten marriages of ten men and ten women. Fijians, of course. He nodded understandingly. Now I asked very carefully at what rate, that is, how many out of ten or a hundred, did separate. He looked blank. He could follow me to a point, but from there he was lost. Then I knew the trouble. He couldn't reach me in what I sought to describe because in his total experience no such occurrence had crossed his path. There was no such word as divorce in his vocabulary, no such custom in his island law. He couldn't conceive of it. I couldn't explain it, nor could you. To his mind, marriage was marriage, and that is that. There was no divorce. People married and stayed married. Another thing I saw in my travels about the village was the courtship ritual. There were at least three matches in the process of making that I could observe, and often the young couples were near as I hobbled about. The young man, seeking among the village bells his choice of mate, upon finding her, manages at all available moments to be somewhere within her sight. This, of course, appears quite accidental. No matter what his preoccupation, whether it be work, play or just loafing, most or all is done within sight of the beloved. These activities, however, are of such a nature as to impress the young lady with the young man's qualities as a possible husband. The young Mary, by the same token, observes these advances, but of course appears not to see them. But at the same time, she too turns up quite accidentally in his presence, rushing hurriedly about her mother's housewifery chores. This process goes on from a few short weeks to months. Then comes the final act in the affair, an ultimate test which determines whether or not the relationship shall dissolve or continue. The young Mary, at the moment she concludes that here at last is the man in her life, in an accidental way allows her sulu to sag to her waist, or her simple cotton blouse to fall open at the front, exposing her breasts. This, the most intimate show of affection, saves the young man the strain of proposing. The parents of the two, who all have slyly observed developments, now, upon seeing this fullest show of affection, negotiate a marriage, which, as I learned later, soon takes place. After the marriage, the young couple separate, each returning to his respective home as formerly. On a day, soon after, the whole village joins in to erect a koro, whereupon these newlyweds move in and set up housekeeping. In my further travels, I met Kama, a philosopher. 
He too had been led to the island metropolis at Lakamba by the lure of education, to be a schoolteacher. But after two years of truck with formal knowledge and the faithless promises of civilization, he returned to primitive Tuvutha. For over 20 years he had forsworn his books and his desire to bring education to his island. Kama had a wistful face when he said the natives' greatest need was to be protected from the evils of civilization. He too had a ten-word English vocabulary, but philosophers like Kama don't need an extensive word range, for they speak with ideas in the large, a universal language. He swept his hand over the peaceful valley at the foot of the extinct volcano. What need of the outer world here? Here there is no criminality, no economic competition, no sexual perversion. The old, the infirm, never worry. Good health is unavoidable, peace has no option. If there is sickness, the jungle abounds with healing herbs. Witness my improved coral poisoning, the healing of my poisoned knee, the very fact that I was alive and not dead, as all had expected. I told him about the war, of which hints had come to the island. He was glad to hear it was over. When I explained the devastation of the atomic bomb, he was horrified. Later, the chief, school teacher, and pastor came to ask me if this were true. I nodded gravely. They looked at me from inscrutable masks. To impress them, I explained. I used my hand to indicate an airplane, which they recognized. I whistled as I indicated a falling bomb, and then said, boom, as it supposedly struck. This too they comprehended, for they had some idea of bombs. Then I inferred that the plane was flying over the island. Raising a finger, I said, one atomic bomb, then showed it falling, explaining that it should hit at mid-island. In a motion, I pantomimed that Tavutha had been wiped out, everyone killed, the very air seared and infected. They were astonished. The old philosopher walked away, shaking his head. Another time, toward the end of that first week, the five of us sat sipping the healthful coconut milk in the chief's hut. We were talking in our limited way at odds and ends. I told them of the starvation of the islands, Europe and India. I went on to explain the shortages of England and China and Russia. I told of war shortages in food the world over. They were in high satisfaction when I informed them that only Tavutha in all the world had no shortages. They had all heard of the fabulous island of America. To their circumscribed minds, all lands were islands. They couldn't believe that Kaikai could be scarce in America. By my telling of that condition, their deformed little island became infinitely swelled with importance. At another time, waiting to accompany a fishing trip out on the lagoon, I described the Empire State Building, our wheezing automobiles, our skies dark with planes. I explained the movies, huge universities, and the Golden Gate Bridge. They couldn't fashion in their minds what their ears heard. The pastor asked me if there were magnificent churches. I told him yes, but it would have been unfair not to say that the beer joints, pool halls, and nightclubs were far more numerous and better patronized. Before any more embarrassing questions arose, I made adieus. They were loath to end the discussion. I was glad. Among them, America's reputation by hearsay was high. I wanted the illusion to hold, so I left to go down to the lagoon beach where the outriggers were moored in readiness for the day's fishing. A few of the village children were around to see the boats away. As yet, the elders had not come from their corros, except for one of the Marys dressed in Sulu and soft cotton blouse, who stood tending an outrigger, its bow resting on the beach. She helped me gain the narrow flat deck then shoved off well into the lagoon to tread water and await the others. I sat facing forward, watching the activity ashore or the colourful marine world below. Suddenly, something whizzed over my shoulder and plopped on the deck in a sort of receptacle near the bow. And when I saw it, I couldn't believe it. It was Mary's soft cotton blouse. I knew what it meant for a Mary to loosen her blouse at the front of a man, but to remove it? I gulped, and surely I must have blushed, to me, there was nothing accidental about this. It was entirely purposive, a desperate show of intention, yet she seemed so unconcerned. 
I wondered how I could say in a tactful way to one who didn't speak my tongue that I was already married, happily married. Ashore, the other outriggers were pushing off to join us. Inside, I stirred desperately, but as the boat glided up, I saw a startling thing. There were some seven Marys on the five craft, and all of them, after the normal manner of their married women, were undressed to the waist. Then it all came clear. The women are the chief divers, and with divers, any kind of clothing above the waist is undesirable, and since fish spearing involves much underwater activity, the women, even the Marys, wear their sulus from waist to knees only. The Mary on the stern was still regarding the water in a very unconcerned way. I heaved a long, peaceful breath and settled back to enjoy the trip. Well, that's the end of this episode of Rare Nautical Reads. I hope you enjoyed it. If you have any aspirations to get out on the water yourself, find out what it's like to get beyond the horizon, out of sight of land, go over to SpartanOceanRacing.com. That's the company that I started seven years ago, which gives sailors of all ages, all backgrounds, and all skill levels the opportunity to get onto 60 and 80 foot boats with professional crew and find out how to safely and effectively take on a long distance offshore passage. If you can't get out on the water, you can go over to patreon.com forward slash the mariner and there you'll find all the podcasts, you'll find blogs, you'll find gear reviews and also the Spartan online seamanship training syllabus, which we've been working on now for over a year. This means every month we put out a 45 minute to one hour video, very nitty gritty, very in detail, looking at exactly how you complete tasks on the boat, how systems work, how to navigate electronic gear, dealing with problems, fixing things, the engine, it's all in there. Um, the last, I guess, is YouTube. If you go over to YouTube forward slash The Mariner, also lots of stuff going on there and lots more of the video blogs there when we're out at sea moving around in these boats and you can see what we're up to. So don't let it just be in the stories. Connect with us on social media, connect with us um, on the water and make it a reality for yourself. Wherever you are, whatever you're doing, I hope you're safe and sound and look forward to sailing with you soon. Cheers. Cheers.